This podcast is brought to you by the law firm of Clyde Snow and Sessions, based in Salt Lake City with offices in Oregon and California. For over 65 years, Clyde Snow has represented clients throughout the West. Clyde Snow, serious about solutions. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect, a podcast putting water into context. I'm Emily Lewis, your host, and I'm a water attorney here in Salt Lake City, Utah, practicing creative solutions to today's and tomorrow's water problems. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to Ripple Effect. Today I have with me Nick Diner, who is the CEO of a very interesting company called Moliere that is kind of on the forefront of some pretty cool water technologies that I found through my favorite means, LinkedIn. And so I contacted the company because it seems like a very interesting premise, and we'll get into that. But also, I just think it's just so important to keep tabs on emerging technologies and with the pace and scale of climate disruptions, which are just here and present in the summer of 2021, I think we just need to be firing on all cylinders in terms of looking at creative solutions to some of our problems. And it looks like Nick's technology could be very helpful in a couple of different spheres that we work in and that I also think the listening audience will get some benefit from. And so... With that, Nick, if you could maybe start us out, could you just give a little bit of a history of kind of like who you are, and then maybe we can move into kind of like the elevator pitch of kind of like what your company is. Sure. And and thanks for having me and including Moliere in your podcast. My background, I've been in the water industry now for almost 15 years. I got into the industry a bit by accident. I was working with General Electric, moving from business to business, and they assigned me to the water business somewhere around 2006, 2007, and fell in love with the industry and stayed with GE until 2010, uh, at which point I had an opportunity to join a startup in the reverse osmosis membrane uh, industry. Um, it was a spin-out from UCLA. The company was called Nano H2O, and they had just developed a new type of seawater desalination RO membrane. And I thought the technology was interesting. And the founder was looking for someone to join him to help build a business plan and bring the, the product to market. And so that was in 2010. I moved to Los Angeles with my wife. A year later, we launched our first product. All of our business was done overseas because there wasn't really a market for our product in the U.S., uh, which was really interesting. I uh, got an opportunity to travel to and do business in, I think, 92 countries. Whoa. Uh, 2014, yeah, 2014 LG, the Korean giants that people know from electronics, uh, also a very large chemical business, and they wanted to enter the water industry, uh, specifically through uh, membrane technology, and they acquired our company, and I stayed with them to the end of 2016. Uh, when I was finishing my time with LG, I was looking for another interesting water technology to support and get behind, and I met the founder of Moliere, uh, who's our CTO today, and he had just developed and patented technology that forms nano-sized bubbles in liquids or in water primarily. Started doing some Google searches on nanobubbles and patent searches on nanobubbles and found the research being done around these 100 nanometer-sized bubbles and how they behave in water and the way they participate in different physical, chemical, and biological reactions was fascinating. And so I uh, helped Bruce, our founder, put together some seed money to get started, and I joined him to help grow the business. And that was about the beginning of 2017. All right. I'm excited. I'm excited to talk to you guys about what you do because, you know, I haven't had a reverse osmosis or membrane discussion yet, but that's on my list of kind of talking about that technology. Um, I mean, obviously, it's a very broad statement, um, but I'm pretty excited to hear about like what 
your nano bubbles are. Can you please, for the audience, give us just kind of the elevator pitch about what nano bubble technology is and kind of like why you think it's a relevant thing to be exploring these days? Yeah. So let me start with what nano bubbles are. It's not nanotechnology. These are bubbles that are formed at the nano scale. So strictly a unit of measurement. We're forming bubbles that are about 100 nanometers in size. That's 2,500 times smaller than a grain of salt. It's actually about the size of a virus or bacteria, not to be so timely in the analogy, but it does work. Uh, bubbles that size behave completely differently from all of the bubbles. So, so let me start with what all of the bubbles are doing and then put that in comparison. When you're trying to inject gas into a liquid, in world of water and wastewater, we often think of, think of that in terms of aeration. You're trying to put air or oxygen into water. You form a bubble. Mm -hmm. The size of that bubble dictates the speed at which it rises. The depth that you inject the gas into and form the bubble will dictate the distance it's going to travel before it comes to the surface and pops because all bubbles other than nanobubbles are rising. The objective is to try to keep that bubble in the water as long as possible so the gas, in this case air or oxygen, is dissolving before it comes to the surface. Mm -hmm. It's an incredibly inefficient process. Um, best in class, what they call aeration systems, will dissolve only 3% of oxygen per foot of water in clean water and only about 1.5% per foot in process or dirty water. So the vast majority of air or oxygen actually doesn't dissolve. It comes to the surface and pops. It's wasted. That's why it's such an energy intensive, highly inefficient process. I literally Nano just wrote down energy footprint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't know the exact number. There are estimates that aeration consumes somewhere between one and a half and 2% of the world's energy, which is, which is a huge number when what? you think about all the, the different things that are consuming energy. Yeah, and it's, a, oh it's an gosh. incredibly high line item in municipal budgets, the aeration system for wastewater treatment plants. Okay. Um, what nanobubbles are doing is, is different. So. Our bubbles don't rise to the surface. They are uh, Brownian in nature. That's determined physics, which means they follow a random path in a fluid or a liquid. A good way to think about it that we often use is it's like blowing smoke into a room. The bubbles will travel everywhere uh, throughout the body of water, evenly across a water column. So you'll start to see oxygen levels rise near the sediment or bottom of the tank and start to match the oxygen levels near the surface. And that's because it's truly spreading throughout the body of water. The bubbles also survive a very long period of time, especially if they're not being consumed rapidly. And because they survive this long period of time and are in that body of water waiting for something, that something allows them to participate in different physical, chemical, and biological reactions. And that's where the bubbles become really interesting. And that's how they start to create added value beyond just efficient gas transfer in a wide range of industrial and even municipal applications. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. <laughs> I've had just so nice. many images. I was like, first of all, I was thinking about the 2008 Olympics with like the bubble stadium and like, because at the time they had this, like all these crazy articles about how like the structure of the bubbles were this, I don't know that your bubbles are different than that, but just like in terms of like the last conversation I think I had about bubbles was about like the Olympic <laughs> stadium in 2008, honestly. And I think that's really interesting. And I keep on thinking about my soda stream. And I'm like, oh, so this is like super soda mm -hmm. stream, but different. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so you basically are working on technology that allows us to make tiny, tiny, tiny bubbles at almost like a virus size. And this allows mm -hmm. us to not only have more time for the gas to be in whatever liquid you're in, whether that be wastewater or fresh water, mm -hmm. and, you know, basically allow it to absorb more oxygen or air, aerate, but also conduct other almost kind of like a physical instead of a chemical transformation, I'm assuming, if they're actually like physically moving through things. I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so can you maybe talk about like, there may be more familiarity on like the aeration side. What are the other kind of activities that these nano bubbles, you know, do? Like, why are they oh so beneficial? Yeah, so you were getting there in that thing before to build off of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so our technology is doing two things. The first is exactly what you described at the end. We're dissolving gas very efficiently into water. So our technology will dissolve more than 85% of oxygen per foot of water. Whoa, so, so you went from 3%, 3% to 85%? Yeah, Okay. Exactly. It's almost 30 times more efficient. And that becomes really important because we now allow our customers in, in a number of applications, particularly in irrigation or agriculture, mm-hmm. to utilize oxygen cost effectively. Because now the vast majority of the oxygen, not air, but you know, pure oxygen mm-hmm. or generated oxygen from an oxygen concentrator is being transferred into the water versus being lost. So you need a much smaller or much less oxygen to start with. The other is the bubbles itself. So to answer your question, once these bubbles are formed, and they're waiting for an opportunity to dissolve or react, they'll participate in those different chemical, physical, biological reactions I referenced before. Some of the attributes or reactions that we focus on start with oxidation. So when the bubble actually collapses, it forms something called a hydroxyl radical, which is a known strong oxidant. Now, we don't produce enough bubbles to make that oxidative strength equivalent to something like bleach or chlorine or peroxide, which are well-known oxidants but it's a mild oxidant that still plays a significant role in improving water quality. So we, when we focus on uh, treating harmful algae blooms, which has become a much big, um, um, an emerging issue very rapidly in the United States now, you're seeing it more and more, not just in Florida, but across the U.S. We're replacing the use of different algicides, pesticides, and herbicides. These are known chemicals to treat harmful algae blooms with just air nanobubbles because the bubbles will oxidize and what they say, lice the algae cell and destroy the algae toxin that's released. So it becomes a more sustainable, cost-effective means to treat a body of water for algae blooms. We also see the bubbles scour. So think of like a hard particle or a physical scouring or scrubbing effect on surfaces. So Virginia Tech used our technology to do some research around the use of oxygen nanobubbles to treat food surfaces, things like uh, listeria and vibrio. And could we reduce or replace the use of uh, chemicals like chlorine or parasitic acid, which are often used to wash foods with just bubbles? And they were showing the way the bubbles were scouring the surface, removing these types of pathogens from food surfaces, whether it's produce or poultry or fish. That is fascinating. Yeah. The the other piece, too, around physical separation, which also opens up a whole new world of applications, is that the bubbles actually have a surface charge. So they act uh, almost like, you know, like, like, like polymers would if they were uh, dosed as opposed to bubbles in water. And that charge, that bubble will bond to particulates of the opposite charge. And you start creating density changes. So you improve physical separation. So we have customers in the produced water space in the oil industry who want to recycle their water more efficiently and more cost effectively will use the bubbles to get better separation. So now they're getting cleaner water in that oil water separation removal process. So they can reuse that water more cost effectively using less chemicals like peroxides and bleach that are often used instead. So you start to see how these bubbles start to play a role and oftentimes replacing the use or reducing the use of chemicals in these different types of reactions that was referencing. So is that a BETT technology? Like I had a woman on mm, several months ago who did a who, who did distributed wastewater treatments where she basically had a on-site, it's kind of like the size of a shipping container, an on-site facility that mm-hmm. she'd park at like breweries or wineries. And then she had a, um, her name is um, 
is AquaCycle and it's uh, Oriana Bressler. She's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, uh, so she used what she considered was a bioelectric chemical. I don't know, a T is something, <laughs> but it was a BETT was the acronym. Is that, so do you also kind of like overlap into that space with, with these, with your technologies? We don't, but only for one specific purpose. What I remember from Oriana's technology, and, and I agree with you, she's great, um, is her process is anaerobic. So mm -hmm. she actually wants the bugs and the bacteria to not have any oxygen exposed to it because those bugs don't mm -hmm. want oxygen. Um, we, but, but the, you are thinking about it correctly. What we do do is provide our products to customers who are using aerobic processes, often in distributed or, or uh, small packaged wastewater treatment plants that are a biological aerobic process. And what we're trying to do there in that specific application is enhance the treatment efficacy. So try to allow our customers to treat more through the same footprint or to reduce the amount of energy they need to treat the amount of wastewater coming through that. And we've done that with membrane bioreactors of breweries. We've done that with conventional aerobic biological treatment processes and food and processing plants. We've done that actually also with flotation systems in food and beverage wastewater treatment processes. Great. Okay. This is very cool. <laughs> okay. So I just heard a lot of really cool things. And so, and we'll break down a couple of these here in just a minute, but basically like, you know, through these, through these nano bubbles, these bubbles that are the size of viruses, you have your oxidation, which is one of the benefits. You've also got scouring, you know, so basically, mm -hmm. you know, the physical action of moving very small particles. And so you, you'd mentioned, you'd mentioned like listeria. In my mind, I was thinking about all these terrible, you know, recalls we have on like lettuce or all these terrible recalls yeah. we have on whatever. This could potentially be a non-chemical means of sanitizing our food for transport. If that's what I'm kind of hearing mm -hmm. you say. Okay. And then I also heard you say in poultry, which means we also don't have to like, you know, put our chicken nuggets in bleach before we make them, you know, <laughs> our chicken for chicken nuggets <laughs> and bleach. <laughs> um, That's just, right. Yeah. Okay. So there's a lot of different applications for this. This is fascinating. Okay, cool. Yep. Okay. Well, while we do support producers and if some, you know, chicken farm wanted to call me, I'd probably talk to them too, but most of my clients are in the agricultural space and in the municipal space. And also, you know, in that municipality, I'm bringing in algae is a problem for us because we also, um, Salt Lake City, who is one of our clients, um, does receive water from Utah Lake here in Utah. Utah Lake does experience harmful algal blooms, blue-green algae. It's terrible. It's nasty stuff. It gets in our canals. We, um, you know, Salt Lake City does some of our, does control some of the canals, um, um, not into their municipal system, but for exchanges. So it, it's an issue for them. Can we maybe take for a minute, let's maybe break those discussions up for a second into like the agricultural space and then maybe talk about the municipal space. So if I'm an agricultural producer and I am looking to like apply your technology and I am, for example, we represent a fairly large association of irrigators that have onion, potato and corn crops. Like, how mm -hmm. do you how do you sell this technology to them as being beneficial and what are you telling them that they're going to get? Like, what does it physically look like to use your nano bubble technology? Yeah, no. So it's a, there's a lot there. Um, yep. Let me start what the product looks like, then I'll explain okay. how 
our customers are using it in agriculture, which is about 50% of our business today. It's our, that's our largest market, specifically irrigation. So our core technology, the, the patented part of the, techno- of the systems that customers buy from us, is actually a passive device, has no moving parts. We use proprietary material to diffuse gas into flowing water. And as that gas is diffused into the flowing, uh, flowing water, we form these 100 nanometer size bubbles. And we're producing hundreds of millions of nano size bubbles per milliliter of water which sounds like an enormous number, but in terms of the volume, it's very, it's minimal in terms of volume displacement, but it's a huge quantity of these bubbles as the water flows through the technology. To enable our customers to be able to use it, we provide systems with pumps, with oxygen concentrators or air compressors, control systems, sensors, depending on what they, what they want to do um, and how they plan to install it. And we produce it in various flow rates. We typically start about 25 gallons a minute we stop at 1,000 gallons a minute in our standard product line. And then we can also customize it to any particular project if it needs a very specific or unique flow. Our, specifically, our irrigation customers usually are using our systems that are running on pure oxygen. So we provide an oxygen concentrator, a pump, the nanobubble technology, and the control system, put it into a you know, skid-mounted frame, and then that usually gets installed either uh, to an irrigation tank where the cust- where the farmer might be adding their nutrients or fertilizer. It could be attached directly off the wellhead if they're coming straight from a well pump into the irrigation. It could also go into an irrigation pond. Think of mm-hmm. these you know, man-made rectangular ponds that you typically see in Central Valley, California, which are you know holding storm water and irrigation water ready to be used each day. And it goes down the drip line. We work with small indoor vertical farms all the way to outdoor specialty crops. The majority of our customers are using drip irrigation. Okay. We're starting to look at what happens when you use our technology and you know, the overhead pivots or flooded uh, uh, irrigation. Um, we're also working very closely with a partner in the field of improving the efficiency or efficacy of liquid fertilizers using nanolevels. And those are different types of, of applications all within the world of irrigation. But the Majority of our customers today in the space will attach our system to an irrigation pond or an irrigation tank, concentrate the water up to about 20 to 25 parts per million of dissolved oxygen, which also means that we have you know, trillions and trillions of nanolevels in that water at the same time. And then that water gets sent down the irrigation line. As it's doing that, we provide two distinct benefits to the plant or to the irrigation system in the plant. The first is we improve water quality and the integrity of the drip. The water quality improvement comes from creating a much more aerobic water. When water is more highly oxygenated, you tend to keep more pathogens at bay, like pythium and phytophthora. The nanobubbles also oxidize those pathogens, so we help improve uh, the water quality by reducing the presence of waterborne disease. We also have seen reductions in biofilm and algae in the, in the drip line, so you get a better integrity on the drip line system. However, more importantly, what we do is we provide a highly oxygenated uh, uh, nanobubble oxygenated environment to the root zone of the plant. And when the roots of the plants are exposed to high levels of oxygenated nanobubble water, we see the roots develop much more robust. They're much, they look much healthier. They're longer, they're larger. And as a result, we start to see that translate to different types of benefits of the plant. We see better nutrient conversion. We see reductions in water usage. We see uh, higher bricks content or sugar content, depending on what the, the, the plant is, the type of crop you're growing. We see higher yields. We see better uh, resistance to things like heat stress. So you see less losses. So you, you get a better quality output, typically a higher yield as well, but always a higher quality output. 
And that's because it all starts in the health of the root. And mm-hmm. what we're doing is creating a healthier, more, more robust root. Awesome. That's really cool. So I just heard a couple things in there. You know, on the water quality perspective, you're feeding the plants better quality water, which is helpful. And we'll get to the oxygenated part in a second. But what I also heard you say that I think is really important, and I think honestly gets very overlooked in our discussions, is it sounds like this maintains the integrity of the systems that the farmers have invested in. Because, mm-hmm. I, you know, switching to a drip irrigation system, and we have a podcast coming up here in, in a couple of weeks with an irrigation specialist, it's expensive. <laughs> It's a lot of money. (laughs) And, um, you know, to me, what I heard you say is this technology can make that tech, make the infrastructure that they install last longer and be in better condition for a longer period of time. And so basically your depreciation Mm -hmm. on those assets is going to be less if you use this. And I think that that is something that often gets left out of the discussion about not only like, there's a lot of conversation about like, you guys need to install X, Y, and Z, but then once you've installed it, how do you keep it working? And so um, mm-hmm. I think that's interesting um, and, and something to kind of note. Um, and then in terms of delivering your highly oxygenated water to the root zone, the thing that I heard you say that popped out most to me is heat stress, because that is what we are dealing with here in the state of Utah. Like we, you can't even believe, like we had a 107 degree day in June this year, unheard of. You know, I think it was our, it was, it was, uh, I think it tied our highest record and that record was like an August day in a year past. So, I mean, these are early hot days for extended periods of time. And so if we start at the root and have healthier roots, that is a, a mitigation tool against heat stress is kind of what I heard you say. Yeah, we learned exactly. We learned this, uh, like the, like many things that we learned about the value of nanobubbles comes through either, um, uh, uh, research projects we do with customers or research projects we do with third-party you know, labs who specialize in this area. And so one area that we're very active in, one area of the world we're very active in is Netherlands. The Netherlands are uh, one of the leaders in uh, what's sort of called uh, horticulture and agriculture technology. And so we worked with a group there called Nova Crop Control, primarily used by farmers to do sap analysis on the, on the health of the plants that they're growing. And they did a side-by-side study on tomatoes. And this was done in a greenhouse, but uh, the point around the heat stress is, is doesn't make it if it's a greenhouse or not. And what they saw on the side by side was that during a very high heat stress period last summer, and the Netherlands or Western Europe has had three consecutive summers up until this one of record temperatures. So this has become a major issue for growers, particularly greenhouse growers. What they saw is that when they looked at the side by side comparison, the nano bubble tomato uh, uh, ended up with a nine percent higher yield, and it was tied back to the struggle that the control tomatoes had during this high radiation, high temperature period versus the nano bubble treated tomatoes that were able to grow more effectively through that time, that, that time period. And that's where we started to see that, that, Hey, this is another unique benefit of providing, you know, oxygen nano bubbles into the roots of these plants to about enable them to withstand that type of stress more efficiently or effectively. Hmm. And then how does it assist you with water reduction? Just that the plants are going well, so you just need less water? Is that just a, a simple simile? Or how does it reduce your use of water when you use your technology? Yeah. What you said is part of it, but there's okay. two other aspects to it that are, are more tied to in terms of the, the, the technical or scientific part of it. So the first is that what we're seeing in, again, side-by-side studies, uh, and this is more done in, in greenhouses, but it, again, applies to outdoor farming as well that we'll see in the drain water after the water has, has run through the, the substrate or the soil the plant is growing in, we'll see differences in nutrient levels that are you know, left over. 
And what we're seeing is that the nano bubble water, the plants are, are, are uh, taking nutrients up more effectively in the nano bubble water. And therefore you actually need less water to go achieve the same you know, nutrient delivery and water delivery to the plant. The second is that nano bubbles reduce the surface tension of water. Uh, almost like a surfactant mm. or so, not to the same degree, but enough to mm-hmm. make the water, you know, quote unquote, wetter. And as a result, we're seeing, and this is early in our research, where we're seeing evidence of it, that the nanobubble water penetrates soil more effectively. And so, and you'll see for the capillary action of how water is moving. And so you're able to get better penetration to soil, particularly compact soils, where you'll see like puddling because the soil is so compact, the water doesn't penetrate uh, through very efficiently. Uh, whereas with nanobubble water, it's able to. And so you're able to use that water more effectively to get into the root zone of the plant in that soil or substrate. And so we're starting to see how those different types of attributes and nanolevels are correlating or playing a role in how farmers could potentially use less water to achieve the output. Oh, I love this. <laughs> I love this and, and that so for, much. <laughs> and I think that for us, yeah, as a mission-driven company, that for us is, is really what we want to get to, right? How do yeah. you ultimately go beyond just the, the expression, you know, grow more with less or do more with less. But what does that less mean? The vast majority of people who work in Moliere come from the water industry and they're all very passionate about how water is used and reused. And if we can help our customers in every industry, particularly in agriculture, which consumes 70% of the world's water, if we can help them use just a little bit less water, it's a huge impact. And I think that ultimately is what we want to get to. Yeah, it is a huge impact. And, you know, here in Utah, we're the second driest state in the nation. And so we just feel this acutely. You know, there's honestly just not enough water to meet all of our various needs that we've, you know, decided to adopt here in the state. And so unless we want to make very drastic draconian changes that change the nature and, you know, feel of what we do as a state, then everyone has to do more with less. And that's a tall task. And finding ways to make that tall task easier is the mission of the future. You know, that's just what we have to do. So I, I'm very much with you on that. And, and I say this every episode, so I apologize for our regular listeners, but mm-hmm. you know, water solutions are silver buckshot solutions. They're not silver bullet solutions. And so little bits count. And so I, I yep. love it. Okay. Before we move to the municipal side though, I want to ask you another question about agriculture. Cause I think that this is mm-hmm. also an important aspect. If I'm a farmer, who has gone on the train with drip technology. And it sounds like that's where this primarily is being used. Um, You know, we don't have a ton of indoor agriculture here in the state of Utah. There are a couple small startups. Um, I did a podcast with Plenty is one of our, you know, first podcasts back a while ago um, for vertical agriculture, but most of ours are still outdoor, you know, big fields, row crops. What is kind of the cost side of installing your technology, you know, to be compatible with the drip system that someone has recently or has, you know, adopted some time ago? Like, is it, if I were a farmer and I want to explore this kind of like, what is 10%? I don't know. Give me a cost side of things. Yeah, the, the, it's like everything in water. It always depends, right? It depends yeah. most importantly on the volume of water we have to treat mm-hmm. and how often you're utilizing that water. Um, and that's going to tell us how much quote unquote, nanobubble systems we need to achieve a certain dissolved oxygen target that we know is the right DO level for both the root as well as the amount of nanobubbles that are going to help provide all the benefits we talked about earlier. But to give you some indication of, of sort of what it's worth, we typically hear from our customers in the agriculture irrigation space that they're getting paybacks using our technology from between six months and 24 months. And that's a mm-hmm. function of the value of the crop, 
not a function of the value of our technology. Just, you know, crops have different values in terms of what they're growing and and what it translates to. So I would say our customers don't feel, you know, the price as the pain point. Um, Uh It's really just a function of whether or not they're prepared to make an investment in this type of technology versus an alternative at this stage. And not an alternative nanolome technology, but to spend money somewhere else on a different problem. Yeah. Oh, countless problems to spend money on. (laughs) Exactly. No, exactly right. Okay. So six to 24 months, like ROI, return on your investment, you know, like depending on kind Mm -hmm. of what crops you're selling, you know, high value onions or something else. Interesting. Okay. That's not terrible. I would say, I think that's pretty good. You know, uh, I I just, and I only, the only, my only caveat with this is I feel like part of the problem with agriculture is that it's just so dependent on what your year looks like, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that temporal nature for agriculture is just so hard. Like this year is terrible. Last year was okay. You know? So, but that's always been the case. That's nothing new that's been around since, since we've been growing things. So, Okay, great. I love it. So on the agricultural side, passive water treatment, you can install it at the wellhead in your holding tank. You know, it sounds like it easily attaches to existing systems. You use it in drip systems, helps with water quality, helps deliver highly oxygenated water to root zones, makes higher yield, reduce our water amount, and then also helps with heat stress. That all sounds mm-hmm. incredibly great. Okay, because now can we kind of walk over and talk a little bit about the municipal side, how your municipal clients are using your technology? Sure. So we, we play in sort of two distinct fields there. One of them is in surface water treatment. So think of reservoirs, lakes, ponds, canals, rivers. And then uh, separate from that, we also play in a role in wastewater treatment. I'll, I'll start with the former on surface water. Uh, surface water is actually our second biggest market after irrigation. And our customers are installing our systems. Think of a shore-mounted system. So sitting alongside a lake or a pond or a canal is a, a box. And that box is our core technology, a pump that's recirculating water from the lake or pond through the technology and back in. So you have two pipes, mm-hmm. one coming in, one coming out, and an air compressor. And in this case, we're typically using air, rarely using oxygen because you don't need to to improve the overall aquatic health of that body of water with a particular focus on trying to mitigate or treat and eliminate the presence of algae and harmful algae blooms. And what happens is we are providing more oxygen near the sediment layer. So as you recall from the beginning of the conversation, you know, bubbles typically are rising to the surface and pop in when you're aerating in a, in a pond or a lake. Therefore, you're getting very little oxygen dissolving at the bottom because it's dissolving as it rises. And really all you're doing is getting some mixing and maybe get some oxygen from the surface down to the bottom, but very little. So we start to make that the bottom layers of the, the lake or pond, which typically are not aerobic, become aerobic. And now you're starting to allow beneficial bacteria and probiotics to start really performing or flourishing. And they're able to you know, uh, digest muck. They're able to consume food sources and nutrients in there that otherwise would be consumed by algae, so you're out competing the algae. And then also the bubbles themselves will start to oxidize that algae and algae toxins. So we start to improve the overall aquatic health in the body of water and try to restore it to, quote unquote, its natural state or to a better, healthier state. And our customers will use this product instead of using algicides, herbicides, and pesticides or other chemicals that are often used in its place. Sorry. So can I ask yeah. a question there? What volume of water are you talking about? Because like you know, here in Utah, Utah Lake is kind of like our poster child of bad algal blooms. And we have them on other water bodies as well. But 
Utah Lake is huge. I mean, that's a lot of water. I mean, so are you, um, I'm assuming that, I don't know, I shouldn't assume, like what volume do you, is there a max out, like the scale that you can't reach or what's the, what kind of, what is your, op, what are you, what have you been kind of experimenting with and what have, the, what have you been found, what have you found on the volume side? No, there's no max. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a function of cost and ultimately whether somebody wants to pay to install, you know, that amount or this number of systems to ultimately achieve the, the treatment uh, they need and prove the body of water uh, the way it needs to be treated. But uh, today as a company, we typically are treating bodies of water less than 100 acres in terms of surface acres and actually more of it skews even smaller than that. But we are interested in getting larger and larger because the problem and the need is there. And our technology does serve a purpose in trying to solve that particular problem. And so ultimately, it really just becomes it becomes a question of, you know, who pays for it, and who wants to pay for it. And I think mm-hmm. one of the challenges that we see in larger bodies of water that do suffer from, you know, harmful algae blooms and other, other uh, uh, water quality issues is that those bodies of water kind of have been out of sight, out of mind, that nobody wants to go pay to go treat it. Uh, they just will wait for the temperature to cool off and, you know, you know, next summer we'll deal with it again. Next summer we'll deal with it again. It goes on and on. We're starting to see that change. We're starting to see more and more interest from municipalities and even the private sector to start to treat these larger bodies of water because they need to be. There are, you know, health issues related with harmful algae blooms. There are uh, cost issues if that water is being used in, you know, water treatment plants downstream where the algae starts to create issues with filters. And also, you start seeing just more and more harm for algae blooms. You have to start to address this. I uh, can't continue. So we are interested in getting into larger bodies of water and working on lowering the cost of our technology with more and more development and research around other ways to make nanobubbles and other ways to package our systems to be able to make it more cost effective for larger bodies of water. Yeah. Because, I, I mean, there are so many costs. I mean, there are cleanup costs, there are recreation costs, there are, you know, just aesthetic costs. There, you know, there's, mm-hmm. it's one of our largest freshwater sources. Well, I mean, all, all water. Well, I was about to say all water in the state of Utah is freshwater, but that's a terribly inaccurate statement <laughs> with the Great Salt Lake right here. <laughs> um, yeah. But like, it's, you know, Utah Lake is our largest freshwater body here in the state. And it's a very shallow lake, so it gets really hot. There's also like a lot of nutrient loading that goes into it, and it's increasingly becoming a big issue that needs to be addressed. And so I would be really interested to see how that scales and kind of what that cost would look like. Okay, so that's kind of surface treatment. Your other part of mm-hmm. the municipal sector is wastewater treatment. And so how are your yeah. nano bubbles used in the wastewater side? Yeah, we, there's two applications that we operate in, and whether it's industrial or municipal. Uh, the first is in flotation. So even though the bubbles themselves are not rising to the surface and floating, they are acting like, I mentioned earlier, like a polymer. They're bonding with particulates of the opposite charge. You start to get a density change and you're able to enable that physical separation. And and we see improvements in flotation as a result. And then the other area is what we call enhancing or augmenting the performance of the existing aeration systems in a biological treatment uh, tank or pond or lagoon. And in that area, it's interesting. The nanobubbles are not playing a role in transferring more oxygen. What they're playing a role is in removing certain contaminants and surfactants from wastewater that prevent the existing aeration system from performing as effectively as it could. And this goes back to something I mentioned at the very beginning, where 
best-in-class aeration systems dissolve 3% of oxygen per foot in clean water, but drops mm-hmm. down to about 1.5% in process water. Well, the reason why it drops in a process or wastewater is that there are contaminants in the water, surfactants and soaps in the water, that are impeding the ability for the bubble to more easily dissolve. So if we can remove that from the wastewater, the bubbles that are being formed by the aeration system will dissolve more efficiently. And so oftentimes customers won't put our system in and they'll see the oxygen levels rise to a greater level than the amount of oxygen we are putting in with our system. And Uh that's because we're actually making the existing systems perform better. So now they're getting more oxygen transferred from their existing system just by adding our system as sort of a, a supplemental, you know, uh, aeration or, or bubble injection. It's like a booster almost. Yeah. Like a booster exactly. shot. So, so in the contaminants, is it like physically, is it like chemically bonding to the surfactants and then like bringing them up mm-hmm. to the surface? Is that, is that what's happening? That's right. It's, it's okay. doing both. It's oxidizing and separating. Okay. Instead of the surfactants, it's just basically like, mugging the aeration bubble and not making it very helpful your bubbles kind of break them up and make them small the surfactant's small and um allow yep. the other bubbles to do their job exactly like, these are like little helper bubbles <laughs> <laughs> okay in some Great. respects that's right in, yeah <laughs> in all the applications we're in that's right yeah, <laughs> yeah. all right Similarly, then with like cost on the agricultural side, it's just very dependent on kind of like the volume you're looking at and the number of times you want to aerate the system. Is that how cost on the municipal side is determined? Essentially, that's right. I mean, it's really a function of the of the volume of water that you're treating per day and the residents time. You know, how much time do we have to treat that water? Mm-hmm. Uh, that always dictates ultimately the size of the equipment we need to provide, which then ultimately drives the cost. Okay. And then, like, are there other things, like, and this is going to belay my ignorance here, but, like, your oxidizer, are you bringing, like, tanks of concentrated oxygen in to feed into your system? Like, what are the other kind of, I'm just trying to think, like, if someone wants to install this, like, what are the things that they need to think about? Like, do they need to have, like, flammable gases? I mean, they probably already have that in their original aeration system. But, like, you know, what is this, like, what is this also adding to in terms of a municipality's, you know, overall responsibility to install this kind of a system? Yeah, well, I'll give you an example, and, and this is, uh, I think, universal for us in terms of what we provide. So, so we did a project with a municipality in, in Southern California outside of San Diego. And in that particular plant, we brought our 1,000-gallon-per-minute air nanobubble system plus the piping. So we literally installed the system in half a day into the headworks of the wastewater treatment plant. All we required from the municipality was power. And we, within a day, were treating the headwork, the wastewater has entered the headworks through our nanobubble system. We provide the air compressor, the pumps, everything, even the piping, as I mentioned before. And, you know, over the course of the first 30 days, what the plant started to see was a 20% increase in treatment capacity. And that's because we're allowing the existing aeration to transfer oxygen more efficiently. And the oxygen transfer improvement, what drove that 20% increase was a 60% improvement in oxygen transfer. And so that's how the technology starts to play a role. It's really... Uh, it's not as simple as plug and play. I think that would be mm-hmm. misrepresenting, but it's a very easy system to install relative to what most uh, water and wastewater treatment plant operators are used to working with. And it is, you know, a self-contained package. We don't, I mean, they're, they're welcome to use their own air compressor. They're welcome to use their own pumps. We're very flexible in that respect, but ultimately most of our customers want us to provide the whole package. And that's what we, that's what we design our systems to do. Okay. You said a 20% increase in, they're 20% more effective in treatment. Like, 
Yeah, so plant some increase in treatment capacity. So capacity, they could increase you said capacity, the, okay. Exactly. So the okay. plant treats about 1.4 million gallons per day of wastewater. Mm-hmm. And because of that improvement in oxygen transfer, which was a 60% improvement in oxygen transfer, again, that comes from us mm-hmm. removing contaminants like surfactants from wastewater that allows the existing aeration systems to dissolve oxygen more effectively. So that 60% improvement in oxygen transfer ultimately allows the plant to treat 20% more wastewater. Okay, but if you're in like a large municipal area like we are, where there are probably multiple water treatment plants, if you get a 20% increase in capacity across several plants, let's say five, and I don't know how many there are here, you know, that's not needing to build a new plant. Like that's- that, So that's exactly what, that you're, you're hitting exactly what we're interested in doing in the municipal wastewater sector. And we know that's a, that's a, that's a market that, you know, moves at a certain pace. But our, mm-hmm. our principal interest is to see how do we help you know, the 15,000 municipal wastewater treatment plants across the United States that might be at already peak capacity or over capacity and struggling mm-hmm. to, to keep up. How do we help them utilize the existing infrastructure more effectively and be allowed and enable them to just be able to treat more with their existing footprint before they got to go build a whole new plant, which is a much bigger investment. Yeah. And we talk about this frequently on this podcast, but like the stacked costs of water investment are real and heavy. And like yep. one treatment plant is expensive on its own, but then when you have one treatment plant and a lead pipe removal project and a new, you know, mm-hmm. storage or, you know, whatever the infrastructure, you know, du jour is like, those are heavy costs to be paid on the, on the backs of ratepayers. And so, you know, I think that, you know, there's just always a public element to, you know, think about when we think about our systems and that we pay for it you know, that's just the way it is, you know, until, until we have some kind of different financing structure, you know, it's either through bonds or rates and and that those are things that we pay for. And so if we can be good stewards of not only the water, but good stewards of the water processes that we own, you know, then, then that's better for everybody. I mean, that's 20% less, you know, it's more money that could be spent elsewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. planting some trees, hopefully. Okay. Well, Nick, this has been incredibly fascinating. I love everything that you were doing. And I feel like I will get off this call and I'll probably call like six people and be like, I just talked to this guy who's got this crazy, crazy (laughs) technology that you need to think about. (laughs) Is there anything that we didn't get a chance to discuss that you would like our listeners to know? No, I I think, you know, the the most important piece is is most of the time still today, because it's such a new industry. When people are hearing nanobubbles, it's completely foreign to them. So, So the number one objective that Moliere has as a company is to really educate the marketplace and these different application industries about nanobubble technology and the benefits it provides. And I think, you know, we've done this now for, for four and a half years. We have over a thousand nanobubble systems installed. I, I think we're past the idea of, oh, this is new, this is unproven. But they also, you know, start to take a look at the research that's been done over the last two decades in nanobubbles. It's really fascinating and eye-opening. And it does require people to think differently. Uh, but I think with that different way of thinking to your point about, you know, how do you solve for some of the treatment capacity issues, you start to see that the technology really plays a role in improving productivity in a more sustainable fashion and helping customers ultimately get more with less. That is ultimately what Moliere's nanobubble technology is enabling all of our customers to do in the different industries that we operate in. Yeah, I love it. You are singing my song. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, Nick, this has been great. This has been honestly fantastic. I would love to check back in with you at some point in time, you know, maybe in like a year or so after you kind of get, well, you sounds like you've got already a thousand installed. So it sounds like you guys are well on your way, but this is a technology that I would love to keep track of. I would love to kind of see what your research and your thoughts are on kind of these larger surface areas, you know, kind of the big lakes for algae. Cause I think that's majorly pressing concern here in Utah, but everything here just seems fantastic. And, and I, I will definitely be thinking about this when I think about, you know, how this could be applied here in Utah and abroad as well. So thanks. No, thank you. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Nothing said in this podcast should be taken as providing legal advice or as establishing an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. This podcast was produced by Mackenzie Nichols. Find Ripple Effect on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.